hours are in. And what we've done to our kids by closing schools because of COVID. The recovery is going to take years. Bring on decades. Mass scores declining for fourth and eighth graders in almost every state and the District of Columbia between 2019 and 2022. This is not going to be easy to recover from. And the people to blame are those who kept schools closed when there was simply no reason to do so. And that's the unions. Doesn't matter if teachers like what I have to say. I'm not accusing the teachers of anything. But those teachers who said, oh, we can't have kids back in school. It's too dangerous. You are guilty. And the only way to respond to it is to break the union in two. Change the way we hire teachers. Change the way we do education in the United States. This is the only possible answer. Unions being in charge of schools is not what's best for students. And parents being in charge is what's best. Can't be denied. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. What's going on, everybody? It's good to be with you. 833, got Tony. 833-468-8669. Peggy Carr is with the National Center for Education Statistics. Stating the results also underscore the importance of instruction and the role of schools in both students' academic growth and their overall well-being. It's clear we all need to come together, policymakers and community leaders at every level, as partners in helping our educators, children, and families succeed. Wrong. That is not it. This has nothing to do with community leaders. I don't know what that means. Policymakers. Are we here to educate kids or are we here to pay people because they belong to a specific union with specific political ideology? I think we're here to educate kids. And I believe parents have to take control of that education. Neighborhoods have to take control of that education. When do we start admitting that this unbelievable experiment in public education has failed? When we go back and look at public education and we take a look at the fact that this did not exist until you had... um, Massachusetts saying, well, we need to do something about this. We need to have a system by which we have public education. Something that I used to favor, by the way. I used to favor public education. It is public education that has made me say, this is not the answer. And there are certainly places where it works. My kids go to public school. I'm very impressed by what they're doing. Now, the fact that I'm very impressed should also be measured by the fact that I may not be, uh, you know, privy to where other students are at across the country or around the globe. But I do note a society that has gone for wokeness over education can't actually be serious about education. And any society that goes for a teacher's union over education can't be serious about education. And so we understand it, so we see it, the, the society writ large sees the wokeness as the problem. It was, oh, what, it was Face the Nation. 
CBS. And on Face the Nation, they had this this group, right? They had the Republican, they had the Democrat, and they had the, the, the Independent. And all three of them talking to Margaret Brennan, discussing how woke education is the worry. Woke education, here it is, that the focus group, woke culture overtaking U.S. education, is indeed the, the problem as, as they see it. This is the big issue. Sure, affecting our children. All these elementary schools and middle schools having woke culture pushed on them from the LGBT plus community for sexual identity and, and, and gender. We should be pushing the actual school studies, math, social studies, science. I can also agree with some of his points. Um, I really would say sex education. I feel like um, some things, you know, are brought to the children's attention. They wouldn't even think about. And you have eight kids. I imagine you have some pretty specific ideas in your mind when you're speaking about this. Yes. Mm -hmm. The children are, they're really influenced. You can teach them one thing at home, but when they go to school, they're just as much influenced by their teachers and their surroundings. And we should have more input to parents of what we want them to learn. Yes. Yes, you should. That was a Republican. That was a Democrat speaking there. Of course, you should have more influence on what they learn. Which is why we have to admit that this system doesn't work. And we have to put an end to it. We have to start over or engage a revamp. I think people in the main would be really opposed to saying, yeah, we don't offer public education anymore. But they'd be very much in favor of saying we actually engage public education, not public indoctrination. We put an end to Randy Weingarten. We say no thank you. We put an end to the unions. We put an end to the abusers who see their schools as their their playgrounds, as their performance centers, who don't believe that somehow they should keep their private lives private. And this is teachers all over the place. If you really think that schools are the places to sexualize children, well, you're kind of creepy. You shouldn't be allowed near a school. But when we take a look at these these numbers, when we take a look at, at these these test scores and take a look at what it's going to mean for a workforce that's already problematic, we're already falling behind. That puts all of its, its, its weight into promoting college because somehow you're only a fully formed person if you get a degree in gender studies. No, what we need are HVAC techs. We need people coding and then we need people creating the things that get engineered. We need both. No, all we do is build out people who can create bigger and bolder HR departments. It's a valueless proposition. What value is the best and biggest HR department in the world if nobody can actually do the work that pays the HR department to get in the way? The rethink, man. But don't forget that Randy Weingarten, 
from the AFT, the NEA, and others, they did this. I don't believe that anybody faults them for the closing of schools that first half of a year, right? When things broke in January, February, and all right, we're not going to school anymore, March, April, May. I don't know if anybody faults anybody. The whole next year, I do. Of course I fault the schools. The schools that went hybrid, one day on, one day off, nonsense. You were all ridiculous children. You knew by that time that our issue here with COVID was about ventilation, moving airflow. What did we say here? Take the masks off and put the jackets on. Open windows. I live in Indiana. Open a window. Yes, it'll be chilly. Everybody will be okay. Serve hot cocoa 24-7. Open the windows. Schools will be fine. Teachers will be fine. But no, they told us their lives were in danger. Your lives weren't in danger. You wanted to get paid, and you didn't want to have to do the work. So you said your lives were in danger, like they did in Chicago. Throw every one of those teachers out on their butt. Don't ever forget what happened. Don't ever forgive it. Don't forgive those union people and those union-connected folks. Don't forgive Randy Weingarten. Don't forgive Miguel Cardona, the Department of Education, from the Department of Education, the Education Secretary. Do not forgive them. And demand better. You forgive these people, you're out of your holy damn mind. Meanwhile, we have a ton to get to. Joe Biden bragging about reducing the deficit. Oh, there ain't nothing. Nothing at all to brag about. I will break that down for you. And if you didn't hear Stacey Abrams talking about abortion as a way to help cut inflation, allow me, allow me to bring it to you. Plus what's going on with China. I've got that story as well. Keep it right here. I'm Tony Katz. My, my, my legislation says there can be no more than eight bullets in a round, okay? Well, with legislation like that, how can we go wrong? Oh, good Lord. You heard it. What? I can't make that up. I cannot make that up. My, my, my legislation says there can be no more than eight bullets in a round, okay? Did he mean eight rounds in a magazine? Did Who knows what he meant? Who knows what he meant? What matters is that Joe Biden is not capable of doing this job. He's not up to the task. There's something wrong with him. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. It's good to be with you. Oh, I'm going to I'm going to get into this more. There's something wrong with Joe Biden. It's okay to say anybody who tells you otherwise is wrong. Anybody who screams you're an ageist or a bigot or something, dismiss those people as ignorant, worthless fools because they are. Next, you are a citizen of the United States of America. That's the president of the United States. He works for you. You're allowed to notice when the people who work for you aren't up to the task. Joe Biden's not up to the task. Plenty of 70 and 80-year-olds who may be, he's not one of them. That's not the story. The story is the continual lies that Joe Biden tells. The continued desire from this administration to not recognize what's going on 
with inflation, what's going on with this economy. This right here is from ABC. This Halloween, there may be more tricks than treats, thanks to inflation's impact on the rising prices of candy. It's just a bunch of hocus pocus. No, it's not a bunch of hocus pocus. According to the latest Consumer Price Index report, the cost of candy and chewing gum is up about 13% from this time last year. Those king-size Reese's peanut butter cups, up 14%. A Hershey's milk chocolate bar, 15%. That party mix that was once $10 will now set you back 1130 Everything is up. Everything, everywhere. Yet if you were to ask Speaker Pelosi, she would tell you that the biggest problem is that people are focusing on the cost of goods. According to her, the biggest problem is that you're paying attention to inflation. The ownership of the ground is with us. It's about getting out the vote. Everything else is a conversation compared to that. Mm -hmm. But in order to do that, you have to have inspiration. You can't run on empty. And the fact is, is that uh, when I hear people talk about inflation, as I heard them there, we have to change that subject. Inflation is a global phenomenon. The EU, the European Union, the UK, the British have higher inflation rate than we do here. It's not the fight is not about inflation. No one cares what the inflation rate is in Germany. When the economy is good, when the economy is bad, nobody asks, hey, how's the economy in Belgium? No one asks. No one cares. People ask, what is the economy like at my kitchen table? And it's bad. And it's only gearing up to get worse. It's only looking worse day in and day out. This administration refuses to admit to this. That's why they've pushed to this idea that, oh, if you vote for Republicans, it's going to be worse. And that's why you hear Joe Biden constantly bragging about this idea of, look at what I've done. I've cut the deficit. What what are you even beginning uh, to talk about? That the deficit is X and now the deficit is Y and look at me, the good work that I've done. How about Glenn Kessler, not necessarily on the political right, at the Washington Post talking about the shell game. When Biden says he cut the deficit by $350 billion in 2021, that's a real number. But before Biden took office, he actually writes, but here's the shell game. Before Biden took office, the CBO said in its early, that's the Congressional Budget Office, said that its early 2021 project, projection, the budget deficit, was expected to decline $875 billion. But then Biden enacted additional COVID funds, resulting in the decline of only $360 billion. The budget deficit was expected to fall even more in 2022. The combined 21-22 budget deficits were projected to be 3.31 trillion. Now the CBO says they will be 3.81 trillion. So Biden is bragging about reducing budget deficits even as he increased the national debt about 500 billion dollars more than originally projected. So when he is is crowing out there about reducing deficits, it's a lie.
the president running a $1.4 trillion budget deficit, 40% higher than before the pandemic. And he's saying, look at me. You understand that Joe Biden and this administration will gladly lie to Americans 24-7-365. You know what uh, Donald Trump lied about? Uh, The crowd size of his inauguration. I always thought it was super weird. It didn't matter. And that was the beginning of the end for uh, for Sean Spicer as press secretary to go out there on day one and be screaming to everybody about crowd size. I mean, it was weird as as can be, weird as can be. And I've, I, I I'm not friends with Sean, but I've interviewed Sean. Lovely, but that was weird. And everybody who either knew him or was around at that time thought that this was very out of character for a guy who was a spokesperson for the RNC. Very out of character. Did Trump like the small lies? Try and prop himself up? I'll tell you, yes, 150%. Absolutely. And on every single lie, somebody was saying that's a lie. Why is it when Joe Biden clearly lies, nobody says a word? He lies about his own history. He lies about his family. He lies about when his house caught on fire, didn't catch on fire. He, he you know, and not, not the way he certainly describes it. He lies about being a professor. He was never a professor. He lies about things his father said. He lies about work experience he had. He li- lies about everything. He lies about the deficit. He lies about what he's costing America with his policies. No one says a word. No one says a word. Man, thank goodness for talk radio. Where else, where else are you going to get honesty? CNN? <laughs> Don't be ridiculous. I've got people on the left. Uh, you should read Brian Riedel uh, over there uh, at the New York Post. Unmitigated gall of Joe Biden claiming that he lowered debt. Worthy read. And that and uh, the Glenn Kessler piece. Because it's Joe Biden lying. Flat out Lying. And yet his party wants to tell me he's killing it. Did did Bill Maher actually say that? Did Bill Maher say that Joe Biden is killing it? Good Lord. Meanwhile, there is interesting movement in China as Xi Jinping solidifies himself as a dictator. Stephen Yates joins us. He's got the expertise. He breaks it down. Keep it here. I'm Tony Katz. Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. So perhaps you saw the video, the video that shows the former, you'll call it the president of China, leader of China, Hu Jintao, being removed from a Politburo meeting. Well, this Politburo meeting was going to allow Xi Jinping to have a third term, an unprecedented third term. What it's doing is it's coronation. You're saying that Xi Jinping is the dictator of China. And if there's a third term, why wouldn't there be a fourth or a fifth or a sixth? You have the man who wants to get to Belt and Road. You have the man who wants to have China dominance in the South China Sea, in uh, that, that area of the Pacific Rim, who wants to be able to control the 5G protocols. Now solidifying the power to be able to do so, and in doing so, also solidify the power to be able to have no one to oppose him. Now, I didn't think that was going to be the former president of China, Hu Jintao, who was there uh, through 2012. 
So why in the world was the man forcibly removed from a Politburo meeting? Tony Katz, good to be with you. Tony Katz today. Steve Yates joins us right now. He's a senior fellow and chair at the China Policy Initiative at American First Policy Institute. Also an advisor to a whole group of people on national security concerns specifically relating to China. You're the guy I reached out to. The minute I saw this video, Steve, and I said, what in the world am I looking at? And your response was, was classically you, which is, I'm not sure yet what we're looking at. And anybody who says otherwise is lying through their teeth. It's been a couple of days. What's your take on Hu Jintao being removed from this Politburo meeting? Well, Tony, I appreciate you reaching out on this. Uh, it, it remains the case that Chinese politics is probably the most secure black box on the planet. Uh, the, and I stand by basically the judgment that people who assert that they know why these things are happening, et cetera, tends not to be those who know. There's an old Taoism uh, quote that comes from, uh, I think it's chapter 56 of the Tao Te Ching that says, those who know do not speak and those who speak do not know. And in the Chinese Communist Party, if you speak out of turn, uh, you could end up in jail, things can happen to your family, you can be disappeared or die. Uh, but for the most part, what we saw is these gatherings are very, very scripted. We're also dealing with really old men. There has to be a logical possibility that it's there's some truth to the state media account that he had a health issue, but it was right there in front of the whole world to see. Extremely awkward to watch. And no matter what the cause was, the net effect is that Xi Jinping looked like he was showing the whole world who's the boss. But I, I think for a lot of us, the question is, why would you show that at the expense of Hu Jintao, the, the former president of China? What is the interplay there over the last few years about uh, who and, and, and what he thinks of what Xi Jinping is doing? Right. Well, from the period of Deng Xiaoping in the 1980s, he's the leader that came to the U.S. with the 10-gallon hat. Uh, had a lot of personal rapport with American leaders and sold the idea that China was biding its time and hiding its capabilities and was going through a reform and opening period that would have a cooperative relationship with the world. China poses no threat, et cetera, et cetera. That kind of ethos went through multiple iterations of Chinese leaders who observed these term limits. Uh, and the last of which was Hu Jintao, who handed the reins over to Xi Jinping in 2012. Uh, and so the symbolism of this treatment of Hu Jintao is important in the sense that Xi Jinping demonstrates a significant break from that perceived more moderate approach by the Communist Party of China leaders uh, from the normalization of diplomatic relations. And really, we've seen it over his entire tenure with wolf warrior diplomats lecturing and hectoring American counterparts, uh, attacking politicians in the UK, in Canada, in Australia, and other parts of the world. Just this, this deeper dive into nationalism and an aggressive and expansive authoritarianism like with the crushing of Hong Kong, is Xi Jinping's brand. That is not what Hu Jintao did. Uh, and so that, I think, is the reason for the perceived contrast. 
talking to Stephen Yates, Senior Fellow and Chair of the China Policy Initiative at the America First Policy Institute. I just, uh, you spend more time studying this than I do. Have there been moments, you talk about people in the Politburo not speaking out, speaking out could get you disappeared, for example. I mean, that's the expression when all of a sudden people like Jack Ma from Alibaba or this tennis player who, whose name eludes me right now, all of a sudden disappear from public view. That's called being disappeared, and Lord only knows what happens to them. Uh, has Hu Jintao been speaking out about Xi Jinping, saying this is the wrong approach? Uh, I, don't, I don't see any evidence that Hu Jintao was leading some kind of a faction to either block Xi Jinping from having an additional term, uh, but it's been widely reported and probably true that Xi Jinping has not gotten along with all of his perceived rivals and predecessors. Uh, he has marginalized each of them in, in significant ways by process and by substance. Uh, and in the personnel appointment process, there are uh, there, there's a top layer of this Politburo Standing Committee that makes all the decisions they say in consultation and consensus. But Xi Jinping has stacked every member of that decision-making body with people who are loyal to him. And so the, uh, the vestiges of Hu Jintao's 10 years in government and the personnel he promoted moved aside, much less the Jiang Zemin uh, era that came before that was uh, still communist. I don't want anyone to misunderstand. These are not kind people, uh, but their style and approach in engaging the world was different. Uh, and Xi's harder line is now backed up by personnel that controls process from top to bottom now. So now let's talk about what we get with another five years. And really, we are talking about lifetime of, of uh, Xi Jinping. Uh, the, the push towards Belt and Road, the push towards more military dominance, the push uh, that we're seeing against Taiwan and, and everyone assumes that we will see within the next year or so China's move to reunify uh, Taiwan in, the, in their one China policy uh, theories. Then, of course, the continued theft of, of U.S. technology and the desire to control uh, 5G. What is What are the steps that we think that Xi Jinping is going to take? How does this move on the presidency allow him to do this further? Uh, and what what is your view on American response? Well, the the intentions that Xi Jinping and his government have had have been pretty clear. Uh, in in some ways, that's pre- that's the transparent part of their government. Uh, they have said very clearly that America is their enemy. It's not that uh, we're a competitor. That's our way of life is adversarial to theirs. Uh, and in the language that she was. Uh, advocating through this Communist Party Congress, it was very nationalistic, it was very communist and socialist, uh, and so there were a lot of deep uh, ideological undertones and very authoritarian, Uh, but it's uh, couched in ways that will make China take its supposedly deserved leadership role in the world and push back against the Americans who in in their theory of the world have been imposing all kinds of horrible things on them, like prosperity and technological advancement and things like that. Um, but where it goes, uh, I, I agree very much with uh, your focus on 
5G and technology. I think that is an underappreciated area uh, where the supply chains are important uh, and our livelihoods depend. Uh, Taiwan is important to me. I lived there. I was a missionary there. Uh, it's a democracy. It's the only democracy in the world the United States doesn't establish diplomatic relations with. I hope people will question our leaders about that. But really, it is a litmus test for where China is going more broadly. And it's this control over supply chains, control over sea lanes and air lanes, control over technology uh, that they seek to use as leverage to impose their will and to block our ability to advocate our interests uh, or try to deter them. So I, I think that we have had an awakening in America and some other places, but we're at the front end of that, needing to strategically decouple anything that we must rely upon for our way of life. We can't afford to have a government like this have leverage over us and control over those supply chains. Now, when you talk about decoupling, you're not going Gwyneth Paltrow. You're discussing the idea uh, that we need to move more manufacturing back to the United States. Is it back to the United States or are there other nations that you feel we should be moving it to? Clearly, uh, China knows this is happening. It was Japan that put billions of dollars to saying, if you bring it back here, we'll pay for to, to make that happen. Um, what is China's response to people trying to move production out of, of China? Are we talking about a reduced level of trade? What happens if China decides to reduce trade levels with the United States, which I would assume would be very, very difficult for them because we're, we're the big trade partner. Um, how are they responding to this? Well, you're exactly right. The government of Japan did put billions of dollars up to try to encourage some of its uh, mega companies to reshore manufacturing back to Japan. Uh, and we uh, in the United States, uh, uh, counterparts in Taiwan, other countries need to do the same thing. It's not an on-off switch. And this concept of strategic decoupling is one that was coined by my colleague here at America First Policy Institute, Ambassador Bob Lighthizer. And it just admits this is not going to be something that can be done in a day or a month or a year. But we must begin the movement now, and we move to safe shore if we can't onshore, and we move what we can, not because of malice towards the Chinese people, but because their government is not a reliable partner, has proven an ability to unleash a, a virus on the world that killed millions of people and stole trillions of dollars of value out of our economies. Uh, and so this is not free trade or fair trade, we must begin this process. Now, if they want to sell and we want to buy the kinds of things that fill discount store shelves, that's not what I'm talking about. But when it comes to uh, pharmaceuticals and uh, communications technology, things that are strategic to our way of life, we can't afford to be overly dependent on them. We must begin minimizing that, safe-shoring it with the ultimate goal of independence for the United States where achievable, just like with energy. But China's aware of this. If we talk about Xi Jinping and his desires, he's aware of this and he needs to mitigate this. So is there a question of how that's done? Is there a concern, I should say, about how that's done? There, There's a question. I mean, the concern is that this is a disruptive uh, factor in the global economy. It's disrupt disruptive to the American economy. Uh, but we've already been rocked a couple of hard times because of things out of China. Uh, so we don't get the luxury of choosing an easy path. 
so uh, yes, uh, the Chinese are aware of this. There's two fronts that they have tried to work very hard to insulate against. One is sanctions styled after those that were imposed upon Russia when Putin invaded Ukraine. Uh, as, as Immediately as that unfolded, China began trying to put policies in place to position itself so it would be less vulnerable to those kinds of sanctions, or in their estimation, less likely that Western powers could or would impose them. Uh, the second area is they've tried to uh, force their own companies to revive domestic consumption uh, and to increase their partnerships and collaboration with Russia, Iran, and other countries that seem to be in this similar axis of do no good, if not evil. Uh, and uh, so that has been the sort of early stages of what they've tried to do by way of their reaction. But the fact of the matter is China's economy is not altogether stable. Uh, they need this trade. Uh, and basically, it is up to us and our partners around the world to impose some kind of standards. Otherwise, we just have uh, basically voted by our pocketbooks uh, to give in to this kind of bullying by China. Before I, I let you go, two things we can give quick answers to. Is there enough economic destabilization possible in China for the people to say we don't want Xi anymore and for the Politburo to make changes? There is, but that is very extreme if you look back over Chinese history. And so I, I basically would see this as much more likely to be a gradual approach. The second question is, there's a lot of talk about the Chinese owning businesses in the United States, owning farmland in the United States. I make the argument that on a national security basis, Chinese nationals, anyone associated with the CCP, uh, cannot own property in the U.S. This has been my take for a while now. Is there any conversation about this going on in any serious quarter? Very much so. And, and your principle is correct. No foreign national has a right to be in our country, uh, to be in our education system, to own property, land, whatever that may be. Those are privileges. And uh, when we look out into the world, uh, it's very, very important to look at the nature of the governments that are sending people and trying to engage in commerce in our country. Uh, and so uh, we at the America First Policy Institute have been advocating, like you, for some time, some restrictions on these things. We've advocated in the states while waiting for Congress to catch up with the American people. Uh, we've worked with ALEC and other organizations to have model policy to block Chinese Communist Party entities from buying agricultural land, but frankly, any form of real property in the United States, because China is a different kind of threat. And until its government changes, we can't allow them to exercise leverage over our food supply or otherwise engage freely in our country when we obviously can't engage freely in theirs. Steve Yates, Senior Fellow and Chair of China Policy Initiative at the American First Policy Institute. I appreciate you taking the time. More to get to. I'm Tony Katz. So it will be Rishi Sunak who will become the next Prime Minister of Great Britain. Yes, the third Prime Minister in seven weeks. That's the way it is. He used to be part of Boris Johnson's cabinet. 
And then, of course, Boris Johnson with some scandals. Uh, they felt he should resign. Elizabeth Truss takes over. And she had an economic plan that sent the market into free fall. And she said, look, if I can't get this done, there's no reason, reason for me to be here. You know what? I'll, I'll step away. That's fine. Bring on Sunak, 42 years old, set to be Britain's first, and this is how they wrote it, non-white prime minister. His parents are Indian, and they were both born in East Africa. Question is, can he do the job? That's what matters uh, the most. And how is he going to create stability amongst the conservative party? I mean, that's going to be a, a, a big one. That's the one that, that, that's important. Boris Johnson had actually come back to the UK. He thought he was going to give this thing a go, then took a look at where the vote totals were and knew that he had enough votes to at least try, but didn't think he had enough uh, uh, to defeat Sunak and didn't want to cause the fight. And thus, we now move into another prime minister, and we'll see. We will all watch and see how that goes, see if markets calm down with this happening. Find everything, TonyCats.locals.com. TonyCats.locals.com. This is Tony Katz Today.